Greetings. Uh, my name is Judah Atkins, and I'll be reading the scripture this morning. We'll be reading out of John 20, verse 1 to 8. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen. Thank you, Judah, for reading the word of the Lord to us this morning. I love how that passage ends. It says, finally, the other disciples, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. Now, we, we understand that he didn't understand everything about the resurrection at this moment, but he did, he saw and believed so what did he believe? I'm not sure that we know all of what he believed, but it becomes apparent later on that he believed that Jesus was alive, and that's what we celebrate today. Our Savior's not dead. He is alive. That's what we're celebrating. And you might, you might have studied the resurrection of Jesus and know tons and tons about all the finer details of all that that accomplished, or that might just be something that's a brand new concept, but, that, but you believe it. You believe it. It might be something that, uh, there's a power in it, even just when we're encountering it for the first time. He is alive. I think it would be a great thing for us to begin our time together here just to uh, greet, use that truth to greet our uh, online church family. Uh, If you're joining us online, we're thrilled that you're with us. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to say, just like Daisy instructed us to do, I'm going to say he is risen. And then I'm going to ask if you're joining us online or if you're in-house that you will shout out your response, he is risen indeed. Okay? And that's something we can do together with our online church family. Okay? Are you ready? He is risen. He is risen Awesome. Awesome. I think I heard from some of the people online, they were so loud. Especially that one house. You guys are really loud, yeah. We heard you all the way up here at the church. (laughs) Actually, I shouldn't say things like that, because then people might be confused about how technology works. So don't worry, we can't hear you. It's okay. All right. Well, does anyone come from a competitive family? Yeah! All right. Now we know what to compete against, don't we? (laughs) This is what I would say about a competitive family. And I come from a competitive family, my family of origin, and even my own family right now uh, with my boys and and, uh, my daughter and then my wife. There's some competitiveness in us as well. You can tell a really competitive family by the fact that they don't just compete when they work and play, but they are still competing after they compete. Really competitive people believe that even if you lose, you might still be able to win if you can argue your side of the story well enough after you've lost. 
So in my family, there's the competition, and then there's the competition after the competition. And that's where the losers show just how competitive they really are. That's where you'll hear things like, you basically cheated. I let you win. Well, at least I'm better at things that matter. <laughs> that game was rigged. You would have all lost if you didn't gang up on me. I wasn't really trying. There's no strategy in this. It's just luck. Next time, let's play a man's game. <laughs> this is what you look like when you were playing. <laughs> They're just taking your side out of pity. And one of the ones I hear in my world quite a bit. You want a rematch right now? Let's go. And then perhaps the most competitive line of all, it doesn't matter anyhow, because I'm still mom's favorite. <laughs> do you ever feel, do you ever have this feeling that other people might actually be God's favorite and not you? Do you ever feel that if he was making a list of who he wanted to meet with and he was going to meet with individuals, like, I mean, not that he could, let's say he was limited to not being able to meet with all of us at once, which he can do now, but do you ever feel that if he was limited to making a list of who he wanted to meet with, that you definitely wouldn't be at the top of the list? I think the resurrection account in the book of John is quite interesting because it has stuff to say about the resurrection, but it's not very long. But what it does say is it talks about the appearances after the resurrection. It says much more about that. And I think it's really surprising who Jesus prioritized meeting with after he was raised from the dead. It's a surprising list. I mean, let me ask you the question, if you were Jesus... You've been, you were crucified, and then you rose from the dead. Who would you want to meet with? I mean, maybe, you know, back to the mom thing, maybe Jesus would want to meet with his mom and say, hey, I'm okay. But, but who would be the priorities of who would get on that list of who you'd meet with first? Uh, two of the ones I would think of if, if I was Jesus. One is I would maybe want to make a visit to my enemies, or the people who didn't believe in the resurrection, like the Sadducees. There's a whole group called the Sadducees who didn't believe in resurrection. It'd be very interesting to just go meet up with a bunch of Sadducees and say, I'm back. <laughs> you know, that might be so, sort of satisfying. Um, but I think who I would pick is I would pick the people who were the most faithful to me. The people who, uh, who stayed the course, who continued to believe who didn't run away when the pressure was on, who didn't betray me or, or deny me or, or, or just get on with life after I was gone. That's who I'd go to. I'd go to those people. I'd go to the people who were most faithful, and I'd say, you, you're the best. You were the most faithful. You're, the, you're at the top of my list. Way to go. That's what I think I would do if I was Jesus. I would go and hand out sort of like, you know, awards for 
who the most faithful followers really were. But that's not who Jesus prioritized meeting with after the resurrection. You know, God is still appearing to people today. He's still reaching out to people today. And we might be surprised at who he reached out to then, and it helps us understand who he would reach out to now even. The first one that we see that he appears to is not a disciple, not one of the 12 disciples. He doesn't appear to a, a church gathering where they'll all worship the resurrected Christ. In fact, he doesn't appear to someone who is specifically religious and and, and definitely in the community, this person wouldn't have been thought of as holy. It was to a woman named Mary, not, not his mother, but a different Mary. Who, And it really shows us that Jesus values everybody. I just want to um, read those verses again. It says, or the verses in John 20, verses 11. It says, Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw Two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? I found this really strange because I thought, if I was angels in a tomb and then this woman who's crying, or this woman peeks her head in, there's a lot of questions you, you could ask her. I mean, it almost seems like the fact she's crying would be an incidental. Because, I mean... The resurrection has happened. I mean, this is a big thing. You'd think that people who are crying or emotional would be a thing that would be ignored in this moment because it's like something so significant has happened that that should take the the headline or it should take the focus. But instead, Mary's tears get the focus. Mary's tears get the, the focus. Why are you crying? Do you ever, maybe you never thought this before, but when you cry, often you cry, most people, I think a lot of people cry when they're alone. Some people will cry when others are around, but a lot of people just cry when they're alone. The Bible indicates that in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament is when we cry that heaven notices David said, all my tears have been recorded in your scroll. Or we might say, you know, God, you've got a perfect record. You've paid attention. You've noticed every tear that's fallen from these eyes, and you have known the hurt that, comes from behind, that, that they come from. So these two angels are drawn to the fact that her soul is hurting. And when she turns and she gets, in the next few verses, she turns and she sees Jesus. I just think it's amazing that the first appearance of Jesus isn't to one of the 12 disciples. And it's not to someone who's going to praise him or worship him in that moment. It's just somebody who's crying. I want to give you a promise. I want to share a promise with you that if you've got deep hurt in your life, if you've got a wound or a hurt, and maybe you're here today and you're not, 
you're not really okay. You're putting on a brave face, but you're really hurting inside. And I don't know what the cause of the hurt might be. Maybe it's relationship in your life. Maybe it's a, um, maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's job scenario. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe your health. But there's a hurt. Here's the promise I want to share with you. Psalm 34, 18. It says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. I mean, Jesus had the whole world he could have appeared to. But the first one he appeared to was someone who's brokenhearted. See, Jesus is attracted to the brokenhearted. And his intention is to save those who are crushed in spirit. So if you're brokenhearted today, my advice to you is this. Look for him. He's not far away from you. He's close to the brokenhearted. If you're brokenhearted, know he's close. And look for him. You may not think he's there, but he's there. And this is what this appearance to Mary, one of the things that it reminds us of is that God is drawn to those who are hurting. And he isn't as far away as you think he is. So look for him like Mary did. Now, the second appearance, if the first one was to someone who was hurting, if the first one was someone who's crying and brokenhearted, the second appearance I want to tell you about is um, someone who was failing. Someone who was failing. Uh, we're talking about an individual that would have considered themselves a failure, a bad failure, a miserable failure, and his name is Peter. Now, Peter has just had a bad weekend the worst weekend of his life. On Thursday night at the Last Supper, Peter, in front of all the other disciples, told Jesus that he would never let Jesus down. He said, you can count on me. I'm all in. I won't. Even if everyone betrays you, if anyone runs away, I never will, Jesus. I'm the one that you can depend on. And Jesus is like, I, I hate to tell you this, Peter, but the truth is, before the sun comes up tomorrow, before the rooster crows to signify the new day, you will have denied me that you even knew me or that you were my follower. You will have denied me three times. And Peter's like, no, never. That can't happen. That would never happen. Of course, if, if you know the story, you know that that did happen. He, he did betray. Uh, he did deny, sorry, deny Jesus three times. And his response to his failure is a lot like how we respond when we fail. You think about it, those times when you fail in your life. We often think that our failure drives Jesus away. And I failed, and so I'm not worthy to be in relationship with Jesus. I, he, he's, he probably doesn't want much to do with me right now. He's probably, he's probably pulling away from me. But the Bible teaches us that our failures... Are the, are the reason in the first place why Jesus came. In fact, he seems to have a special interest in people who are failures. In fact, in Mark's gospel, the, Mark's telling of this whole um, part around the resurrection, he tells you part where God has an angel tell three women to, that Jesus is risen 
and that Jesus will meet them all in Galilee in the future. In fact, that's where people believe that he met five, over 500 people together at once. That's why there were so many witnesses of the resurrection, because Jesus kept making all these appearances. But he, said, he says, I want you to go and tell the disciples and Peter. It's interesting. Here's Jesus who he'll be worshipped by, by, by hundreds. He'll be, he'll be seen by hundreds. In fact, he's setting up this scenario so he can be seen by over 500 so go tell them that this meeting is going to happen in Galilee. Go happen, tell them about this thing. But he goes, go tell the disciples and Peter. Even when setting something up for hundreds, he, he's thinking about the one. And why is he so drawn to Peter? Because of what he wanted to do in Peter's life. Now, I love it. He says, go tell the disciples and Peter. How does Peter feel? He probably doesn't feel like one of the disciples anymore because of his massive failure. He probably, um, I'm sure he's experiencing great shame because of what he's done. Some people, I heard someone say it this way. It's called disappointment because you missed your appointment. You missed your moment. You missed your, your, your opportunity. Peter, you were given this golden moment to stand up and say, I belong to Jesus. I will never deny him. I'll never not say that I, he, he, I am his and he is mine. But Peter missed that appointment three times. And now he's, he's living in shame over what he's done. He had this expectation of himself that he was the strong one. He was the brave one. He was the one who wouldn't do these things. And he told Jesus that in front of everybody else. I'll never deny you. I'll never do this. And now he's living in the aftermath of, those, of that experience of his failure. Again, we think our failures drive Jesus away. But actually, that's because of our failures, Jesus is drawn to us. He has a special interest in us and in restoring us. So Jesus has this personal dis discussion with, uh, with Peter. And this is how, how it goes. Well, first, Peter's out fishing again. People have lots of theories about this. Some people think, well, Peter's given up on being a disciple. I don't know if that's totally true. I don't think it's true. But it might be easier than following Jesus right now just to go back to what he knows. Well, at least I'm good at fishing or somewhat good at fishing, right? At least I can, I have something I can do. Or at least I can do some good if I can go fishing. And, and Jesus comes. They've been fishing through the night. So it's like they're doing the night shift fishing. And Jesus comes and on the beach builds a fire and, and, um, and then he cooks a breakfast for them. This is what I love. I just love this about Jesus. If you're a failure, Jesus is the kind of leader that when you have failed him in the worst way, that he'll make you breakfast on a beach for you as you come off the night shift. Just so he can have a personal conversation with you. 
to restore you. That's our God. That's the love and care that he has for us. This is how it goes. He has this conversation with Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And people debate, is that more than fish? Or does he love Jesus more than the other disciples do? There's a few different theories about it, but do you love me is the essence of it. And Jesus says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus says something interesting. He says, then feed my lambs. Of course, I don't think Jesus had a flock of sheep, but of literal sheep, but his, his followers. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, or which is Peter's other name, do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus says, take care of my sheep. And then the third time he says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And it says, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. Now, I'm, I, this is conjecture. It doesn't say in the text exactly why, but I think I'm guessing maybe why. Jesus asking him three times, is, it's like an echo back to when he denied Jesus three times. So it's, it's interesting. It's, it's like without saying it directly, Jesus is addressing the elephant in the room. And Peter's hurt. And Jesus' intention here is not to layer shame on top of the shame that's already there. But you know what happens when we uh, fail, when we are ashamed, or when, or when we're, we fail, is that often comes into those failures a lie that messes up our future. So Peter fails, and then the, the, the lie could very much be that, you know what, you, you had this privileged position of being one of Jesus' closest followers, but you can never have that again. In fact, there's, there's probably going to just be a healthy distance between you and Jesus in the days to come, and, and Jesus can't really use you again. And all that possibility of you being a, a leader that could help other people come to know Jesus, that's probably not yours anymore. That's probably not a possibility. That's probably dis, you're probably disqualified from all of those things. And so Jesus doesn't just ask him simply, do you love me? Yes, I love you. He asks him three times. And every time he asks the question, and every time Peter answers, he comes back with the same thing. I have a purpose for you. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Three times, again and again and again. And so for Peter, where the lie has been planted, it's like Jesus is injecting truth back into that memory of his failure, of his failure to uh, say that he belonged to Jesus, that he was a Jesus follower. He's bringing the truth of his grace and his mercy into that situation. And he's saying, no, I still have a role for you. I'll still use you. I'll still allow you to be a part of the mission and and the the huge thing that I'm doing in the world. You know, I've noticed in society, they don't do that for us as much anymore. I say us like everyone, right? It seems like, you know, we talk about cancel culture, things like that. It's like, you fail, you're done. There's no comeback. Especially if you fail online, you're done. Because now we have the digital receipts. Forever. 
Jesus is not like that. Jesus comes into the one follower who probably, you know, maybe aside from Judas, the one follower who failed him in the biggest way. And he puts him on the top of the priority list to meet with him to restore him. So Jesus hasn't given up on you if you failed. You're free to love him because he'll love you back even with all your mistakes. And he wants to restore things that have been, that you think are not options anymore in your life or he wants to restore you in partner, he wants you to work with him in helping other people come to know him and, and walk with him. The last appearance I want to talk about this morning Again, he appeared to over 500 and then many different appearances. I'm talking about three very individualized experiences this morning. Here's the last one. It's about a guy we call Doubting Thomas. I mean, poor guy, eh? He doubted one time and he gets his label forever. You know, I always think about, you know, Lazy Susan. How did she get that name? And Cotton Eye Joe, I really don't know how Cotton Eye... I don't even know what that means. Cotton Eye? Anyhow, I don't know. Bad nicknames. Anyhow, Jesus appeared to all of the disciples, and Thomas wasn't there. And it was a dramatic appearance. They have the door locked because they're afraid of the Jewish leaders who are going to come and persecute them. So the door is locked, and Jesus comes through the wall. I mean, this is the glorified, resurrected Jesus. There's a whole new what can be done here thing. So he comes through the wall. It's an amazing miracle. It's funny, he comes through the wall and the first thing he says is, peace be with you, because they need to hear that right at that moment, right? (laughs) If someone came through your wall, you'd be like, peace, 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 peace be with you, right? That's what he says. And so they're so excited. But Thomas missed the moment. Thomas wasn't there. And so they go on and they, um, they... Basically, they're telling him that, right? We've seen the Lord. We've seen the resurrected Jesus. But, but Thomas doesn't believe. Thomas, he didn't believe Jesus was resurrected, even when the disciples told him. In fact, I almost think the disciples telling him maybe didn't have the desired effect. You know, it could be they're just stating the facts, but it might feel for Thomas like they're rubbing it in, right? Hey, man, we had this amazing spiritual experience that you didn't have. Jesus came through the wall. The door was locked. And then, oh, it was incredible the things he said about our future, how, how we would be used in the world, and we, we'd be forgiving people's sins. There's a whole, those verses are all in there. Incredible stuff God has in store for us. You missed it, Thomas. You missed that incredible experience. And Thomas says, well, I don't, I don't believe I don't believe he's resurrected. In fact, I won't believe unless I could, uh, unless I could have something that was unmistakable, unless I could see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. This is what I find just incredible about Jesus. A week later, A week later, Thomas is with the other disciples. And Jesus recreates the exact same scenario he missed. 
Let me read it to you. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. John 20, 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. <laughs> he popped through the wall again. <laughs> I was thinking about this, and I thought, the first time, the door was locked. They're afraid of the Jewish leaders. Uh, and if someone came in the door and said, hey, it's Jesus, they would have not believed. Right? No, I don't think so. Like, this is Sunday night, Resurrection Sunday. The first time it happened, Jesus needed to pop through the wall. Like, you would have been like, hey, it's Jesus. Get lost. Quit mocking us. We're not deceived by that. But then he does this miracle and they see and they believe. A week later, the door is still locked. If Jesus knocked now and said, hey, it's Jesus, they would have said, okay, Jesus, let, uh, just give us a second. We'll unlock the door. Don't worry, Jesus, we got this. We got this. We know, you're just like, we, oh, it's great you're coming back. You don't need to pop through the wall this time because we can just unlock the door. But he does. Who's that for? I think it's just for Thomas. It's just for Thomas. He recreates the experience that, they, that he missed. Says the exact same thing when he comes in. He says, peace be with you. And then he speaks directly to Thomas and he says, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. So Jesus comes to where doubters are. And he invites doubters to do something. He invites doubters to reach out. I think it's incredible. It's incredible how far Jesus goes. I, I think this is more than Thomas deserves for sure. More than what we deserve for sure. Yet he's that good. He's that good. You know, you don't, I want to just talk about doubts for a second. You might not need to have all your doubts eliminated. In fact, you don't need to have all your doubts eliminated before you come to believe. Did you know that? You might think, uh, I have doubts here, 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 and here about the Christian story or whatever. I want to tell you, I've seen this time and time again where people have, you know, some of those, you know, it's good to deal with those things, talk about those things. I think that's very valuable. But I've seen this again and again where people who still have some doubts, they come to believe. They come to believe. They don't have it all figured out. They don't have all their answers that they'd like to have. Yet they come to believe and they begin a life with God. So doubters can become believers. Even with all their doubts. Even if some of their doubts are not answered. And the thing I love about this whole story is Jesus isn't bothered by our doubts as much as we think. Again, you think, he doesn't believe. I mean, that's the worst thing. But he invites us to take another step. Just take a step and reach out to him. Now, this third appearance story, it has really special significance for me because it reminds me a lot of the story of my dad. My dad 
uh, grew up in England, and he uh, went to, uh, I think, a Methodist church. And while he was there, so he went to Sunday school and sort of, you know, he had sort of a kid um, understanding of the Bible and God and things like that. Then he, in his 20s, he moved to Canada to go on a great adventure and came to Canada. And he was living in Vancouver and he was reading a book about God. And when he finished reading the book, the book had sort of persuaded him or he'd come to conclude uh, by reading this book. uh, Well, it sort of introduced all these new doubts in his mind towards God. And so he had a conversation with God and his conversation with God went like this. I don't believe in you anymore. If you're real, you need to prove yourself to me. Now, I mean, if God's real, that's a pretty impertinent prayer to pray. And you'd almost think that, like, that kind of response, you know, like, does God really need to prove himself to us? God is not like you rub a you rub a, a bottle and a genie comes out. That's not how it is with God. He's God. We are not. We're the creation. He's the creator. It's like, it's you know you you think that doesn't honor God for someone to say, "Well, I don't even believe in you." But if you're real, you can prove yourself to me. Like, I mean, maybe I'm taking it a little further than my dad meant it, but seriously, does God respond to that? Does God respond to people who say, well, I don't believe. I won't even believe unless I get the evidence of putting my fingers in his wounds. Yikes. You know, a couple days after my dad, I say, broke up with God. I mean, he never really had a saving faith in God. He just sort of knew some stuff about God. But he, he wasn't what the Bible would say, what Jesus said, was born again. He wasn't, you know, made new, made a new person in Christ. A couple days after he said this to God, or said this to the God he didn't believe in, a co-worker named Irwin was praying in the stockroom, asking God, who do you want me to talk to and share about you to? And then he felt this urgency inside of him to leave the stockroom right now. And he did, and he ran into my dad. And he told my dad who Jesus was and who Jesus could be for him in his life. And the kind of things Jesus wanted to do in his life, bring transformation and change and give him life that was really life. And my dad, in his season of greatest doubt, became a believer. I love this about Jesus. There's no, like, if I, if I was God, I would not have answered my dad. I'm not that merciful. God is, though. God is incredibly merciful and gracious to those who doubt. In fact, the teaching of the New Testament for the followers of Jesus in Jude 1.22, is this. We are to be merciful to those who doubt. We're supposed to be like Jesus. When you find somebody and they're saying, I don't believe, I don't believe that, you, this, you could imagine Jesus with Thomas going, really, Thomas? 
I walked with you for three years. I taught you. I was patient with you. And you just don't believe? Really, Thomas? I popped through the wall. And you don't believe? Really, Thomas? Like, I mean, you could see how you'd be frustrated as a leader with followers like that. And what does he do? He meets him exactly where he is. And he says, put your hands here where you wanted to. Put your hands. Put your, put your hand there. This is what you need? I'm meeting you. You just got to reach out now. Stop doubting and believe. So today, maybe, you're, maybe your heart's broken. Or maybe you feel like a failure. Or maybe you're just, you're a doubter. The resurrection is huge. It's, there's so many implications of it. But one of the things we see in it is that the heart of God to reach out to those who are far from God. The resurrection means to us that God is close to the brokenhearted, that he restores those that fail, and that he's merciful to those who doubt. In fact, you see this in the Bible in the beginning and end, the very first story, sort of uh, main climactic story about the humans in the, in, the, uh, in the book of Genesis, which is the very beginning of the Bible, is the story of Adam and Eve, and they choose to disregard and stop trusting God and disbelieve him and, and turn from him and disobey. And, and they, they, it's, it's a terrible story. It's called, we call it the fall because humanity falls out of relationship with God. They fall into sin. The power of sin becomes their master instead of walking in the relationship with God. It's a terrible, terrible story. But in that story, in that story, it says they've, they've sinned and then they have this realization of their sin and they try to do what we all do when we've done something wrong. They try to hide it. So they cover themselves up with leaves and then they, they hide away from God and then it says that they hear God coming. Again, when you've failed so significantly, when, you've, when, you, when you're, you're hurting so significantly, when you're doubting so significantly, God appears. Wow. I did that for dramatic effect. There you go. <laughs> God appears. Now you say, well, he's appearing to bring judgment, to bring consequences for their sin. That is actually true. But in that... I forget that often in this story. In that story, he also brings something else. The first hope-filled promise of a Savior. Even though it seems like evil's won the day and that, and that humanity has descended into this, uh, has become this betrayer of God and has, has descended into this uh, disobedient, going their own way away from God pattern, God pronounces that evil will be crushed someday through the brutal bruises of one who will give himself. It's the very first prophecy of Jesus, and it comes right on the heels of failure and sin. God comes near and he says, Yes, there's consequences to sin. There always is. But the power of sin over humanity will be broken. 
and the penalty for sin will be paid for. And eventually, for those who come to have eternal life through trusting in this Savior, the presence of sin will be removed in the life to come. All of that is given at the moment of sin and deepest failure. I've said this before, I'll say it again. I know I'm growing in my belief in the gospel, the story about Jesus, the story about what it means for me. I know I'm growing in that when I can receive God's grace sooner after I fail. When I recognize his offer for me to be in relationship with him and to be restored, it, that I, I engage that quicker. If I sort of say, oh, I, I really can't face God for a week or a month or something like that, I know that's a sign of not belief, but disbelief. That's a sign that I believe that it's my performance that makes me right with God instead of what Jesus did for me on the cross. So the very first story about in the Bible is about the fall of mankind, but God appears and he gives a hopeful promise about what will yet happen. And then... At the end of the Bible, you have John who wrote this account that we read this morning. You know, John himself was transformed in a very similar way. John obviously came from a competitive family. He and his brother, Jesus, had nickname for them. James and John were called the Sons of Thunder. That would make a great uh, hair band, right? The Sons of Thunder. Maybe there is a band like that already. I'll have to look it up. They were called the Sons of Thunder. They were highly competitive guys. When people didn't want to listen to Jesus and rejected him, they'd go to Jesus and say, let's just call down fire from heaven on them. They wanted to be number one. In fact, they got their mom involved in this little scheme where they, they got their mom to come to Jesus because, you know, they were their mom's favorite, right? Come to Jesus and ask if they could be Ranked number one in the future kingdom Jesus was building, ahead of all the other disciples. Pretty competitive guys. And each time, in those cases, Jesus rebukes them. Said, no, that's not the way. That's not how it is. That's how my kingdom works. But he doesn't reject them, and he continues to use them. And that's why John, when he refers to himself in this story that we read today, he doesn't refer to himself by name as John. He refers to himself as the one that Jesus loves. And I don't think that's a competitive thing, like I was loved more than other people. I think at this point, it's like he's, this is, he's identifying himself by how he experiences Jesus. He's the one who really loved me. He's the one who deeply loved me. In fact, in, in the years to come, he becomes known as the apostle of love, the disciple of love. He ends up writing 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, and of course this Gospel of John, and you'll see the word love showing up, I think about 80 times in all those different things. He's talking about love, talking about God's love, God's love, God's love that changed him from a son of thunder, highly competitive, wanting to be number one, to experiencing God's love, God's restoration, and God's incredible grace and patience with him to see him transformed. And God offers that for us today. In fact, in John's 
last thing he wrote, which is the book of Revelation, he hears this from Jesus, and he writes it down. Revelation 3.20, and this is Jesus speaking. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So Jesus has come all the way. He's come all the way. He's come from heaven to earth. But he's come all the way to your door and he's knocked. And all you have to do is open the door. And he'll do more than save you. He'll, he'll, he'll share life with you. I love this. In this verse, it's like he'll share a meal with you and you can be friends. It's mind-blowing. This clearly shows that God is still making appearances. He appeared to Mary when she was crying. He appeared to Peter when he'd failed. He appeared to Thomas when he was doubting. He appeared to my dad when he didn't believe. And he'll appear to you too. He'll show up in your life too. You just got to reach out. Just got to open the door. Just got to say, yes, I want what you're offering. I want relationship with this God who has so deeply loved me. I want to just do a bit of a I wonder if I can pull up that slide I was asking for at the end there. A, B, C, and D. I want to just take a moment for us to evaluate where we're at. You know, this is the question that God answers Adam and Eve, asks Adam and Eve in the garden. He says, where are you? Where are you? Of course, he knows where they are at. But when someone asks you, where are you, then you have to think about where you are at, right? So this is the where are you question. So I just, here's four letters to help it be simple. Where are you? A, I'm already in a relationship with God. Maybe you are. Maybe you're already in a relationship with God. So Easter Sunday, you just, you came pumped to celebrate what he's already done for you. Awesome. B, I'm beginning a real relationship with God today. You can do that. In fact, in a moment, I'll, I'll lead you in a prayer if you want to commit your life to Christ today. Okay? C, I want to consider what God wants to do in my life. Maybe that's where you are. You're in that consideration stage. You're, you're thinking about it. Thinking about what this means for me. The significance of, of this. Or D, I, I don't ever intend to make this decision. If you're here and that's you, we're thrilled you're here. Absolutely thrilled you're here. Okay? That may be where you're at right now. That's totally okay. But just where are you? Where are you? Where are you today? If you say, I want to begin that relationship with God today, you can. You can do that. So I want to lead you in a prayer. I'm just going to pray. You can, um, you can use these words to trust in Jesus. Again, it's trusting that what he did on the cross was enough. It was necessary because of our sin. It was necessary because of our separation from God. But it was enough. In fact, it's the only thing that could make us right with God is what Jesus did for us on the cross. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And um, this could be 
part of the thinking that you're projecting towards God, that you're saying towards God. So Jesus, thank you for paying for my sins. Today, I, I thank you for what you did for me on the cross. You gave me your life, and I give you mine. So I'm going in with you all, all the way today. I'm not holding anything back. Forgive me for living life my own way. Please forgive my sin. Today on Easter 2023, I make you the Lord of my life. I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe that you died and were buried and rose again. And today I put my faith in you. I'm not looking back. I'm looking forward to your leadership and your guidance in my life. Thank you for changing my life. In Jesus' name, I pray. And everyone said, Amen. You know, if you made that decision just to begin life with Christ today, begin with him today, I'm going to give you just three quick ones uh, that might be helpful to you. Um, there's a booklet on the tables out there that matches the next six weeks of what we're going to teach in the church. So what on earth am I here for? Find out the purpose for why God made you and what it means to walk with him and, and to be his, his follower. Uh, so grab that booklet. Come the next six Sundays, or if you can't make it, make sure you check in on that teaching because it'll be really helpful to you. Um, also, tell somebody. This is really big. This is a big decision. Tell somebody. You maybe came with someone. You can tell them. If you didn't come with someone, you're here alone, but you made that decision, catch me or catch whoever's at the info desk today and tell them or tell me. That would be awesome. Um, the other thing is there's a step, a next step that comes with becoming a follower of Jesus, and that is water baptism. So you might not know much about that, but it's a celebration of the life transformation that Jesus brings into our life. And so that's something to consider. And so I mean, if you have questions about that, uh, catch me, catch someone at the info desk or you can phone the church during the week, but talk to someone about that because baptism is the way that we go public with, a, with what might be a private reality right now. It's the way we go public and so that everyone knows I belong to him and he belongs to me. All right. It's still Easter Sunday, so we just need to keep celebrating. And these guys are going to help us do it. So would you stand? Would you stand with us this morning? And let's just keep praising the one who made us his very own. Please.